and welcome back to 10 terabyte hard drive my name is Joe this is our review of the year 2023 as per usual I'm joined by my regular co-host Gareth um, Gareth will join us in a moment just to let you know uh, this is we're gonna go through a uh, top five each to make a combined top ten really it did work out quite quite beautifully because uh, we only had one film that we shared uh, together and um, most of the films that we didn't share we haven't even seen so it makes for quite a lovely um, coalescing of uh, of lists to make a, a lovely joint top nine uh, together or actually a, a top ten actually because uh, Gareth kind of snuck two in there and is number five but we'll get to that in a moment um, listeners you can uh, like and subscribe to this podcast if you wish you can send us an email at 10TB hard drive pod at gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, spread the word if you uh, if you enjoy it. Anyway, enough warbling. Let's get to the important stuff, which is something that everyone loves, which is a, a list of films that uh, you probably may or may not have seen. Enjoy. Listeners, let, let's get into it. Um, I am not one for looking back in my life. I don't really like the concept of nostalgia. You know, it, I only I don't enjoy stuff on the, for the sake of nostalgia personally. So to look back is quite rare for me to do. However, let's look back twelve months. I can just about do that and uh, look at the year twenty twenty three in terms of cinema. For me, as a viewer, a down year for me. You know, in terms of what I've watched, I realised this year I didn't watch a single Hong Kong movie, like from like the classic eighties, nineties era, and I'm like, that is shameful. That <laughs> is absolutely shameful. So I need to have like a month of just watching like Stephen Chow films or something, just to like really get myself back into the the Hong Kong watching spirit. Um, we're gonna do our we're gonna do top fives. Should we do top fives and then we have a combined ten? Um, yeah. And then we'll yeah, we'll do a bit of any other five. business. Yeah, sounds good. So do, you, do you want to start? Because I've uh, I've kicked this off. Do you want to give us your number five? Hmm. Yeah, and it's um, for the listeners' context, uh, probably the one that I struggled with the most because, as a kind of relapsed cinephile, like I've fucking barely seen anything <laughs> this year, <laughs> which is doesn't make me like the ideal guest for uh, co-hosting um, ten terabyte hard drive, but. Mm. Um, so, so, so Joe and I did discuss this beforehand. Um, I was kind of working my way through a lot of the releases that I kind of just assumed that would kind of be um, dead certs for the list, mm. um, just to, to to pad it out a little bit. And I was able to see a couple of those, but they kind of come later. for For the fifth one, I've got a, I've got a, I, I've got a tie. I think between a film that we've talked about already so we don't need to really go into um because it's in our pilot episode which is uh conor o'malley's the mask which oh, i'm yeah. so you know still so glad that you uh turned me on to because um, it's <laughs> definitely it's probably the most purely entertaining film maybe along with uh, another one that we'll talk about later uh, on mm. the list um easily the funniest probably the most kind of authentically contemporary in that it's kind of an upload onto youtube it's quite short in length 
Um, mm. Obviously, all, all the stuff that we discussed in the pilot episode in terms of its form as well um, and the subject of its critique and its comedy as well, which all felt, you know, really, really contemporary and really, really vital uh, for me. Yeah. And I... And as I said, I had never even heard of Conor O'Malley. So <laughs> reminding yeah. listeners that for half the film, I thought this was actually like a YouTube documentary <laughs> in the bo- in the boogie documentary mold of a real guy, which uh, is a testament to to how that not, sorry that, for that bringing that it up. That better not be in your top five. That better not <laughs> no. be in your top five. I hate that film. No, no, that is definitely not. Although I like it more than you. And maybe when we unearth the, the lost pilot, people will hear a little bit more about that. But no, it's mm. certainly not in my top five. Um, and then, as I said, because we discussed the mask already, it's uh, it's joint uh, addition to my top five is a film that I really admired, and especially at the beginning, I was like, yeah, this is worthy of of the Palm Door that it received, which was um, Anatomy of a Fall. Oh, um, so I'm going to put those as joint. Um, I think the mask was definitely more of a personal preference, but. Uh, it's nice to get a more kind of like traditional um, kind of like handsomely made prestige film sort of an art film not really uh, on the list sorry go go on Joe can I ask because I've not seen Anatomy before because Mm. I'm actually do you know what winning the palm door put me off of it because I was just like "Eh, the last couple palm doors have been a bit 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 of stinkers do you know what I mean I'm, I'm including Parasite in that because I'm not a huge Parasite fan yeah uh, I agree I agree yeah um it seemed a bit worthy I'm not like again you can tell me if I'm wrong here but yeah. I will get to it because I don't know I feel like I should um, but again it's just again what I just said I feel like I should that cinematic homework which is the worst thing in the world I don't <laughs> yeah. know is, is is it cinematic homework you know because I, I remember at the time when Meek's mm. Cutoff came out people were like oh mm. this is like cinematic homework and I'm like you do not deserve Meek's Cutoff if you think it is cinematic homework but how did the last year to fall play for you? Uh, no, cinematic homework. No, I think I, I really don't respond well to those ones where it feels like you're mm. watching it because it's part of a wider conversation, and then there's nothing actually particularly resonant, you know, based on yeah. your own subjective preferences in the movie. It, it definitely wasn't that. It definitely has a lot kind of going for it. It has an incredible um, hook. Uh, the opening scene is really really well well done uh, masterfully mm. directed and mounted and it sets up um the titular fall um and then the rest of the film is really long um but it's two and a half hours of uh courtroom scenes um around i, I guess i'll give the listeners like a bit of a bit of a, a synopsis um if they are not aware of it it's uh, a a courtroom drama about um uh, family uh, it's there is a, a wife uh, husband and their blind son um, and mm. the, the opening scene kind of sets it all out she's doing an interview with one of her students she's a she's a writer of note um, they're li- they're living in France which is uh, the husband's um, kind of home country and she's mm. she's uh, from Germany um, and she's doing an interview with uh, someone from a magazine who wants to talk about her new book coming out and um, the husband is working upstairs who you never see uh, playing really loud music and um, the son goes out because he's frustrated by the dad playing music 
they're doing the interview downstairs. He goes out on a walk with his dog. Uh, the woman leaves because of the sorry, the interviewer leaves because of the uh, loud music being played, which means that they have to stop the interview. Mm. Um, then all this kind of cross cutting goes on, and it kind of crescendos into um, the guy which again you don't see you you find out through the the kid coming back from his walk with the dog um discovering his dad's kind of dead body and then the film obviously never shows you that the whole film is then about working out uh, whether she's guilty or not um mm. she hires a lawyer the lawyer um and her uh, know each other from back in the day there's a, a an interesting relationship between those two and you mm. think because of just her demeanor and how kind of um uh, at the, I, I don't want to spoil it it's a difficult one to talk about um, in terms of spoilers but it's set up to be like hang on like did she do it or didn't she and that's obviously the right. kind of the crux of the film but it really cleverly subverts that at the end um, you realise actually the, that was the wrong way to look at the film and that wasn't what the film was trying to be it was so mm. it kind of plays with the genre conventions quite well there's a touch of kind of uh, Verhoeven Fincher and kind of some of the sexual politics stuff which I think is really good uh, I just think it's a little bit too clever for its own good and a little bit sterile. And even though the courtroom scenes are really, really good, um, the domestic scenes, especially towards the latter half of the film, uh, aren't really quite as engaging. And it doesn't really go anywhere. And it's big kind of final twist, even though I think it's kind of subverting even the idea of having a twist within it, it is a little bit underwhelming. Um Mm. and doesn't really kind of service the film in a way that leaves much of a lasting impression. So I get my lasting impression was that, yeah, this is, this is, I can see why this won the Palme d'Or. They seem to gravitate towards those kind of like prestige pictures that um, mm. try to capture the zeitgeist of the moment. I think this does that in a way in terms of how it uh, deals with its kind of sexual politics quite successfully. Um, you know, not like some of the A24 stuff, which we've kind of crit criticized before that, that seems to jump on it in a tone deaf way. I think this is a lot more kind of sophisticated and attuned to to kind of contemporary reality in a way that they're mm. not. So I thought that was quite good. Um, but yeah, the lasting impression is a little bit um, ephemeral. It's not. It's not kind of. It's not one that you're going to kind of want to go and revisit. And then when you consider how long it is, like two and a half hours, this could have. I, I hate to make that arbitrary point, but this could easily have been like tightened up and been just as effective you know so every right. kind of surface compo every component level on the surface is really polished to a T just left me feeling a little bit cold but worthy of a spot because of how little I've seen <laughs> and we'll put it next to the mask because you know it's nice to have a, an actual a more classical wow. kind of film in the list wow. as well okay yeah. cool that's an interesting double bill to uh, to throw out there early on <laughs> it would uh, I, I'm going to hit you with my with my number five uh, this is, I thought this film was absolutely tremendous. The, the film is uh, Trenque Laquin by Laura Citarella. Uh, it's an Argentinian movie. It's broken up into two parts. Um, and essentially it's, one part is a missing person film where you see the person go missing, like you follow them on their journey of going missing. And the other part is seeing the people around her after she's gone and then thinking, why is she gone? Why has she gone missing? And you see their version of events and you realize that they're right in their understanding of why she's gone missing. But ultimately, they don't know the full truth of the matter um, so that they're not completely correct. They're correct within the context of their story, but not within the story as a whole. 
The movie moves into multiple different genres and has multiple different turns. There's one turn in it that is... I, I was really quite impressed that they went down this road. It went into this sort of like... I don't know how to describe it. Like, sci-fi, I guess, turn late in the movie. Like, you know, you're three hours in and it makes this, like, sci-fi turn. And then it's sort of has this kind of... You know, you referenced... Um, Possession a bit earlier. I don't know if we were recording when you referenced possession, but mm. um, this sort of like you know how Isabella Ajani is like um, obsessed like the with that monster in possession. Uh, imagine like having that level of obsession, but instead of going crazy, you just kind of like shrug your shoulders and walk off. Like it's it's more like that sort of reaction mm. of like, well, there's not much I can do, and now life is kind of meaningless after this. Um, really beguiling beautiful movie that also has a, a really interesting subplot about two people discovering a historical romance through letters hidden in library books so it goes into this sort of like romance hidden through library references that's really bizarre but well done um as well uh, yeah super impressive film it's the same company that did like um la fleur a few years ago that you know that 14 hour mm, yeah. movie that came out yeah um this uh, Citarella has made another film called Ostende. She made it about ten years ago, I believe, with the same actress from Trenke Lakin, um, uh, in the same area as well. The area is, is called Trenke Lakin. Um, really fantastic film. Um, highly, highly recommend it. Um, and it has two. Uh, I know there was the fixation on in- intermissions this year. You know, with Oppenheimer mm. and Killers of the Flower Moon and all that. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, Asteroid the late- City, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, the, was the intermission wanting to turn it off after 10 minutes? Is that the, uh, <laughs> is that the intermission you're referencing there? So it certainly was for me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, listen, I'm not going to lie. I did fall asleep during Asteroid City and I went back to it the oh. next day and it was a bit like, why did I Why did I come back to this? It was fine. It was fine. Honestly. But he's... he's, he's, he's is he washed? He's a little bit washed, I think. Yeah, uh, he is at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm not a hater as well. Like I, I do like his earlier stuff. Sorry to derail the conversation. About sorry, yeah, something yeah. Actually, well, we interesting. Could, yeah, um, we could. We could. We maybe, 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 maybe we can. We can make him go back to that and shit on that at the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Trenke Lakin, highly, mm. highly recommend that. Giving it uh, four stars there. If you wanna, if you wanna go on the uh, letterboxd. Dave Meltzer scale, nice. so it's um, yeah, really, really <laughs> recommend it. And also, yeah, it's broken up into two distinct films. Um, you have to follow; it has to. You have to watch it in order, obviously. But if you want to like split it over two nights, you could easily do that. Excellent. So yeah, Trenke Lakin. Nice. Uh, give me your number four. Hit me with your number four. Number four. Uh, number four is uh, Todd Haynes's May December. For Brilliant. Me. Uh, have you seen it? I have seen May December. Yes. Uh, I nice. very much liked it and I think the whole debate around if it's camp or not is uh, mind numbing to say the least you know, <laughs> uh, yeah who cares if it's camp or not is is the film of any quality I, I think so quite a bit anyway yeah, I'm, I'm, hi- I'm hijacking your your turn here D- tell me your thoughts no, on no, December. No. we don't we don't not have to go into the plot of it but like no I was gonna say I think it anatomy of a fall is very much predicated around its plot so I thought kind of any kind of description of it kind of needed a, a synopsis but I wouldn't say that's the case here as much mm. well 
maybe it is, but maybe I'm assuming a bit more of a familiarity with it because it has become this kind of like um, uh, think piece kind of uh, bait film for a lot of people, mm. a lot of commentators on social media. Um, I loved it because, yeah, I mean, a huge fan of all, all of Haynes' stuff. So like the other other de- directors represented in my top five, um, it's kind of like a surefire thing um, that I'm going to respond well um, to the movie. And, and I really did, you know, sucker for melodrama. He's really in like Cirque mode, like more than he's even, I mean, he's always kind of in Cirque mode to some degree or, or Fassbinder mode. Um, but in Fast, this Fassbinder one, like, was the one I was thinking. I thought very Fassbinder. Yeah. With the zooms and whatnot. De- it's, uh, I know. Yeah. And all, yeah, all mirrors, surfaces, reflections, like it's all here. But I think that, I think it comes across a lot in this as well because you've got a really kind of emotionally charged, like uncomfortable kind of central um, mm. subject matter. Um, and you've also got the fact that he's directing it as a bit of a gun for hire. I mean, he didn't seek out this project. Um, Portman was attached to it, I believe, and executive yeah. produced it and then sought him out for it. Um, yeah. And he, yeah, so when he's kind of in that mode, I think it gives him even a little bit more artistic license to really kind of like ramp up the um, the Serkian stuff, especially from a, a visual standpoint, which which he really does, I think. Like like most of his movies, it's a, it's really ravishing. It's it's beautiful mm. to look at. Um, some of the sunsets as they're um, mm. kind of walking around and, and outside, um, the sunlight kind of filtering through. There's this recurrent uh, motif of the of the kind of butterfly in the chrysalis as well, and he kind of shoots that um, kind of really really kind of close up with a nice kind of depth of field effect. Mm. Uh, that's really beautiful to look at. Um, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm just a sucker for those films. Like, it's a film about complicated women with two absolutely incredible, like, central female lead performances. Um, and I think what kind of elevates it above um, some of Haynes's less successful work for me is is that central subject matter of being so uncomfortable. And I, I'm really kind of like a sucker for for those films. I'm almost like the antithesis of the people who are kind of reacting to it on social media. Um, mm. If because if, you have seen this one, we can maybe go back and forth on it uh, a little bit. And sure. if we're gonna if we're gonna kind of um, throw a bone to those kind of uh, cultural conversations, um, I kind of took a few notes in terms of how that 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 breaks down. As of yesterday, I think the the second controversy that it's generated only came out yesterday. Oh um, yeah. So the foot. Yeah, the, f- the first one is about how it kind of glorifies grooming, <laughs> which I, I mean, just I've, think, uh, oh, my uh, God. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. I, uh, that, that's, it really that's is. Ridiculous. That's there's, a, there's, a, there's, a quote, there's a quote by Eric Henderson who uh, talked about uh, around Showgirls last week, and I hadn't actually seen his work for a long time, but he's um, they're massive fans of Haynes as well, and I, I follow him on Letterboxd, so he... He had a good part of his kind of review of it, uh, which is a question that we can discuss. And I'd like to get your thoughts on it, actually, because uh, it is something that you and I have discussed uh, outside of the pod as well. And he says, um, does anyone actually receive movies anymore or do they only filter them through their own matrix of preconceived polemical positions? And I thought, yeah, this is that movie where that is so true in terms of, yeah. you know, as as we say, the reception to it. I mean, if you want to... <sighs> They talked about like. Do you want to talk about the fact that the guy that it's sort of based upon is upset about the movie? I, I don't yeah, know yeah. I'll just, 
I'll just give a quick summary of that as well because that was the second half of the the yeah. kind of controversy that that came out yesterday. Um, so for anyone not aware, um, the guy who the film is based on, who was th- thirteen at the time when he mm. was statutorily raped by uh, his teacher, mm. who the film reconfigures as a uh, reconfigures it to be it. Um, maybe there's nothing less problematic about the central problematic uh, assault that yeah. this movie is built around but for some reason the script felt it more appropriate to do it set in a pet shop rather than a teacher so that's that's kind of interesting but the controversy is that the guy that's based around that 13 year old who was statutorily raped uh, has now come out and says and said uh, if I'd been a consultant on this film we could have made a masterpiece and I thought that was interesting he's clearly kind of thinking in terms of the film which is kind of what the film does as well, because Natalie Portman as the main character is thinking about how her film of the incident within the film could be a masterpiece as well. So I thought mm. that was interesting that he said that in real life. Uh, but he said if he was a consultant on the film, it would be a masterpiece, which then obviously split lines between ethical debates around should people always be consulted, which a lot of people were advocating for, which I profoundly no. disagree with. And no, the other side, which I think you and I would more agree with, which is artists should be able to tell their own stories in whatever way they want. And if we find that problematic or we receive that in a certain way, that's fine. You know, we can, we can, we're adults, we can wrestle with that. But, you know, we don't need it to have this kind of, for, it, media doesn't need to be first person for it to have value, I guess, or be I don't, sound, does it? I don't need things to be spoon fed for me on these, on these issues. Also, if this. Uh, <laughs> Listen, man, I get it. If he's, like, upset with the movie, it's fine, I get it. But we could have made a masterpiece if I was involved is a pretty hilarious thing to say about yourself. I mean, <laughs> it is. A person who has never made a film, and you're saying that to Todd Haynes. Um, I think it's... it's <laughs> the hubris. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I was just... <laughs> yes. The hubris of it all is um, pretty shocking. Yeah, I've got... I've got can't, can't lie. Uh, yeah, man, like, I don't know... I, I don't. I don't want to go down these roads that often because, like, the people mm. who are the people who are saying like it's a pro grooming film, it inspires such fervor from the other side where they both come out with such ridiculous comments, and it's like, yeah, if you if you right. think if you think Todd Haynes, Natalie Portman, and Julianne Moore have gone out of their way to make a film with the intention of it being pro grooming. I think you've got some quite serious issues and, uh, you know, I don't know, man, like, are films for you? Like, th- it's okay to, to be like, hey, man, yeah, this this thing isn't for me. Some people don't like video games. So some people weirdly don't like music. You know, that, that happens sometimes. It's not for everyone. You know, you don't have to join in with these things sometimes. But maybe a film can be a bit complicated for you. I'm going to quote a tweet that I saw from uh, the Hit Factory podcast account. Um, I'm just going to read it like verbatim basically interesting convo going on re May December the inherently exploitative nature of art based on real people the responsibility of artists to consult subjects that inspire their work for some compelling thoughts on this might I recommend seeking out Todd Haynes new film May December like it is commenting on itself quite clearly Mm. how do you not get that it, the thing is, is that you could easily do a film that's just straight up about that relationship, about the the teacher and the student. 
But would that necessarily be an interesting movie? Probably not. Just from my perspective. Probably would Yeah, I, th- I think you've just touched on exactly why they didn't choose to do that in the script, yeah. isn't it? It's clearly because that would be such a hot topic and it would dominate the entire movie where the movie is so much more multifaceted and and complex than than, yeah. than that kind of like oh look how controversial it is that she was a teacher and she was grooming him so I think that mm. was probably where the pivot came from. Also, um, Julianne Moore's performance I think is incredible. The fact that her list her lisp has different variants, like yeah, it's, it's, it comes and goes. Sometimes, brilliant. Sometimes she's really lisping and sometimes it's not there at all. Um, yeah, that's such that's... A, an interesting choice that they make and and her. I think the central thing that's it, there's two, because the two central performances, even though the guy's been getting a lot of praise, and rightly so, he carries a mm. lot of emotional weight really convincingly. So I really like his performance. Um, okay. But I think that the, the two, the things that I like most about it, why it's made my top four is because of, uh, top five rather, is because of, um, because you've got the complexity in Julianne Moore's character of like, how much is she aware of her own actions? Like, is she complicit in this? Or is it a product mm. of her? Is it a product of her own abuse? And then that that ambiguous ending, like it's just so rich with ambiguity from her perspective in terms of, you know, how much like she's aware that what she's doing is bad, and how much mm. is she being consciously manipulate manipulative as a result, or is she really just naive and kind of a victim of of her own kind of abuse cycle? And Maybe. then with Natalie Portman's character, she's crossing a lot of these kind of ethical boundaries to get the best performance possible. Um, you know, is that what what and what is she motivated by as well? Like, there's a lot of interesting kind of psychosexual stuff going on with 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 what she's doing in that, and it raises mm. a lot of questions about you know the nature of acting as well and what the purpose of um, presenting real world events in a film is, which is obviously a meta commentary. Like a, the film is being a self allegory for its own its own self in that sense. Mm. Um, so yeah, I. I think it's uh, I think it's really good. I think it re- will reward repeat viewings. I'm really excited to see it again, and you know it's uh, another knockout from uh, Mr. Haynes. Yeah, love that movie. Very big fan of that. Uh, right, my number four again. I don't know how much I want to say about this, considering that I know you haven't seen it yet. But my number four is um, Michael Mann's Ferrari. Um, oh, I- so jealous! That would easily be in my top five if I yeah, had seen it. it um, <laughs> Again, I don't want to say too much about it, um, but just again, watching a film made by Michael Mann about a man who is obsessed with the creation of his own art to the point that it ruins people around him. You know, people have said, "Oh, the self commentary on him, on Michael Mann's self and all that," and I'm like, "Yeah, there probably is maybe a bit of that in there. You know, maybe there is that ability to relate to him." Um, it's quite obvious there in the first hour of it and when I was watching it I was like okay I, I get why he's made this movie but I'm not fully understanding why he's was so committed to making this Enzo Ferrari film for so long and then the last hour comes with the race and I'm like oh yeah he let rip he let rip during that racing sequence the race um, across Italy and just what him and Eric Messerschmidt do with the during that racing sequence is like absolutely superb like really really superb there's a shot where he does like this speed ramping where he goes up away from a car up to this carved face on the church that I won't spoil for you because of the face I think is quite excellent the one that they choose 
Mm. And uh, when they did that moment, I was just like, yeah, yeah, this was probably worth spending all these years to try and get this made. And um, again, there was a moment late in the movie that's really shocking. That kind of like, my mouth was like agape. I was close to tears just at this moment. And um, yeah, it, it was sort of coalesced into why he did this of like, you spend all these years creating a piece of work that ultimately will possibly destroy someone, kill them, but mm. is it worth it in the end? Like, you know, it, it, it plays with those sort of ideas of like, is your art worth destroying parts of your life for? The performances at the heart of it are brilliant. Adam Driver does one of the best, you know, young guy playing an old guy performances. Um, his hair is is the main selling point, but Penelope Cruz <laughs> genuinely gives one of the best performances I've seen in a Michael Mann movie. Like it's oh, wow. it's up there, it's up there in terms of the best performances in a Michael Mann film. She is like so, man, so weighty and so tired at points. Also, the walk. Mm. As someone I you know I, I used to live in Italy, um, you see older Italian people walking like that and Adam Driver and her nail the old Italian person walk like really <laughs> well yeah really really well so yeah I loved Michael Mann's Ferrari again I don't want to spoil it too much until we can do our Eric Mr. Schmidt yes. double bill of the killer and Ferrari uh, which we will do at some point in 2024 um, but yeah number just, four for just, me, just, Michael Mann's Ferrari only one question on it really Joe is that mm. um and I've had this when I think about Ali as maybe like a lesser man, and then sometimes I've oh. toyed around with that. So he's doing a, a biopic again, and this he's in that mode. Mm. Where then does it rank for you um, in the man canon, or is it far too early, as we've discussed previously? That you know, it's too you've early. only just seen it, so yeah, too it's early. It's too so. early because honestly, Ali on the third viewing is when I was yeah. just like, yeah, this is a masterpiece. Like, this is a real master. I, I rewatched Charlie like, maybe a month ago or six, eight weeks ago. And I was just, like, floored by it. The second time I was floored by it, and this third time I was mm. floored by it. Like, you know, Will Smith is so good in that movie. Like, he's so fucking good, so charismatic, and he really gets it, I, th I think. He, he really gets the physicality of it. And Michael Mann, how he shows Ali in that movie is brilliant. And that last bit, the rumble in the jungle, is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Anyway, Michael Mann's Ferrari, number four for me. You're number three. Do you want to hit me with it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, for me, it is a, and again, maybe controversial, but we do live in the post kind of Twin Peaks, the return being Kaede <laughs> Cinema's favorite film of the decade. So I think it's mm. fair enough. But I've also got other justifications for it. Um, but yeah, without rambling anymore, it's The Curse by Benny Safdie and uh, Nathan Fielder. Did uh, um, Benny Safdie direct so this? He directed episodes, including the pilot, um, mm. and his fingerprints are all over it uh, because he wrote every episode as well. Um, oh wow! How how familiar with it are you, Joe? And have you seen it? Because this is one we we haven't discussed off pod at all, have we? I am aware of it. I've not seen it. I'm kind of holding off watching it. To be honest, I did. A, I was sort of prioritised watching other things. Um, I have a vague knowledge of what the plot is. It, um, but I've heard that it is one of the most cringe-inducing shows that's ever been produced. <laughs> is that is that fair yeah. to say? Well, that's an interesting way to start talking about it because Americans have a really low threshold for that. 
Um, and obviously oh, really? British people. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because like they'll they'll watch something like Peep Show, you know, and then say, "How can you watch this? Like this is just insufferable." Oh, that's the most relatable like, show of all time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we're watching it just like yeah, that's that's reflecting our lived existence, man. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't know. So uh, people always overrate the pudding for that. People actually overrate the pudding in a film that I think is a good. Um, kind of entry point into discussing this as well because there are a lot of stylistic similarities which is Uncut Gems I remember people before Uncut Gems came out or around the time it was out rather saying things like oh you know this you can't watch this like you'll have a panic attack and mm. I don't know maybe I just don't have these kind of like I didn't physical have visceral reactions either. to films I no. mean I'm a, l- I'm Wait, a little bit controversial with that in that I kind of prefer Good Time to Uncut Gems anyway Like, uh, oh yeah massively film. Oh, is is that is that a controversy? Do yeah, people yeah, actually, yeah. People, okay. Yeah, people oh, think wow. Uncut Gems is well way better. I'm like, one's got Robert Pattinson in it, so I know which one I'm favouring. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm yeah. in jest, but like, well, let, yeah, let no, me and you can talk about that on the WhatsApp then, because that is, yeah. I'm shocked. I, good time is way better. Like, sorry, sorry, Uncut Gems heads, but yeah, Good Time is way better. So I'm glad that we're yeah. aligned with that. Um, but yeah, this is good. It is well. It's it's more than good, and the reason why I think I'm happy to include it in like a film list is you know not just because it's who cares you know and the boundaries are uh, are blurred anyway, which which is very much the case. Mm. Um, I, I think in terms of, I think a lot a lot of the stuff that Nathan Field has done previously. I don't know how much the listeners will be familiar. I'm presuming probably quite a bit with things like uh, the rehearsal. Uh, and obviously Nathan For You I mean Nathan mm-hmm. For You is very obviously a, a comedy and obviously a TV show in its format um, you know t- 10 minute sections of yeah. uh, him going to various businesses and uh, giving them ideas um, and like it's very much you know playing with the TV format the reality TV format is kind of what mm. it's satirising um, this is doing that as well there's a satire that the essential crux of this is that it's satirising uh, reality TV shows like um, Grand Designs or whatever the the oh, kind of okay. uh, UK equivalent to that would be, um, where uh, the, the the film that they're making, sorry, the TV show that they're making, the fil- the the show within a show, mm. is called uh, uh, Flipanthropy, which I think is a really oh, good joke. That's good. <laughs> oh, I like that uh, because they're basically two very privileged, uh, very wealthy. Uh, white white guys going over to uh, or white couple rather going to um, Espanola in Mexico City um, they've developed all these kind of environmentally friendly houses that on right. the one side they want to sell and make a genuine profit because they've invested a lot of their own personal wealth into it and on the right. other hand they want to present it within the world of the show to show how kind of brilliant and well-intentioned and liberal they are that they're right. going into this neighbourhood and giving opportunities and things like that um, and they they basically want to have their cake and eat it. They want everything, even though they're mm. very comfortable presenting this false reality of the show, which they manipulate to very cringy effects. You know, I will I will give Americans credit on that on on that one. This mm. one is probably one of the hardest to watch in terms of the cringe that I've ever seen. I mean, for me, like I said, it doesn't really affect the viewing experience. Like I, I can take it <laughs> in a way that right. some people really can't. But I will concede that it is it really kind of stretches the elastic band of like how much you can take um, within that, um, especially when they're meeting some of the the Native American indigenous people from 
Espinola and they're trying to convince them that they're doing a good thing <laughs> and that like these environmentally friendly houses which cost mm. you know millions and millions will bring prosperity and jobs to the community rather than just be you know a force of like gentrification and yeah. you know it, it uh, conflate uh, sorry com- confound or amplify the the rich poor divide um how's um, but yeah been a bit waffly go on how's that, how's Emma Stone in it oh I mean, you've you've probably seen if you've asked that how the raves that are coming her way and they're yeah. com- fully deserved. Like my contrarian streak is was completely dissipated when I saw that because I thought, can she really be that good? Because I've never, I've always thought she was like hardly competent, but I've never had an emotional reaction to any of her performances. But with this one, yeah, massively, she's uh, it is it is astounding what she's able to pr- uh, mm. portray. In terms of um, that kind of like overprivileged, like white liberal who thinks mm. that you know they're they're the savior, uh, and that everything they touch turns to gold, and you know the the film's good because it obviously portrays very realistic reactions to that because it's satirizing that milieu uh, mm. and that certain type of individual with a razor sharpness, you know, with with a kind of level of uh, formal formidableness that you'd expect from a Safdie Bros movie and also the kind of razor sharp comedy, you know, deeply funny kind of cringe comedy that uh, Nathan Mm. Fielder excels in as well. And it's a beautiful marriage of those two things. And she comes out as the MVP somehow because she is so convincing and she puts herself through everything. Um, And it's, it's, it's terrifying, you know, in a way that the best, best kind of projects like this are because they're holding a mirror up to something deeply recognizable, sometimes even within yourself um and it is yeah it's it's a striking striking performance worthy worthy of all the praise that that she's got excellent excellent um right i'll give you my number three and listen if you want to cringe get ready because i i'm going to to make you cringe (laughs) with my french pronunciation here uh my number three film is frederick wiseman's new film menu places les tragois i believe is how you say it um it's a documentary about a family that runs three restaurants in sort of central france um all highly rated um uh, particularly trois which was a restaurant founded 93 years ago that has three michelin stars um it's um basically a typical wiseman film about going into an institution observing the institution uh going through meetings uh, and then seeing the place in action and the characters that you pick up along the way and the sort of little exchanges that you that you get to create this full picture of what it takes to run a three-star Michelin restaurant. It is um, hypnotic at points. You know, when you're watching, like, these guys working on these dishes and just, like, the level of craft that goes into it is, like, incredible. I think there probably is somewhat of a link there between this film and Michael Mann's Ferrari that you could make. Uh, quite easily of like you know the obsessive mind you know that's willing to push itself um you know and willing to like experiment and like you know um get into arguments over it there's a great scene early on where one of the sons is talking to the dad and they're talking about his new dish idea that he's got and he's going through the ingredients for it and at, one, at the end his dad just puts his head in his hands and he just goes like no, that's too much. And the son's just smiling with such joy and glee that his idea has upset his dad so much that, like, he can't even, like, look at him, basically. He's just like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like, I can't believe I'm talking to you right now. 
and there's loads of like little lovely scenes like that of them discussing ideas for for um for dishes and then you just see them going about doing it i mean there's again also the lovely contrast of like there's meet there's bits where they're having meetings that are quite serious business meetings of like this person's wanted to change their reservation for this we need to spend this much on bringing wine in and then you cut to five of the chefs going out and frolicking into the woods and picking herbs <laughs> and you know and having a, awesome. a you know a, a charming lovely time and yeah really wonderful wonderful movie one of wiseman's best i think of his recent output amazing uh, I, I love frederick wiseman it's amazing he's still yeah, making films at 91 years old yeah i mean the guy is one of one do, i think uh, do, do again you, go on, sorry go on sorry sorry joe i was just gonna say just because yeah, I'm, I'm so compelled by your description of it um i saw your tweet the other day and i thought yeah this sounds amazing do you actually uh, you know like something like the trip for example where they dine in um michelin star restaurants do you see any mm. of that kind of like behind the scenes stuff of the actual is it food porn basically is what I'm yeah, asking because yeah. Yeah, I yeah. love I love the mechanics of restaurant stuff but I love to see some actual um yeah actual dishes yeah. as well does it go does it show you any of that stuff yeah it gets into that it gets into that it's more interested so, in the mechanics of the building of those dishes yeah which sure. is uh, yeah cool. it, I mean cooking programs are like absolutely like easy catnip for me the original kitchen nightmares the Hell uk yeah. one is like an oh. easy throw on for yeah right we're doing a pod on that that's one of the <laughs> yeah we're doing a pod it on is <laughs> it is the episode of the runaway girl is just one of the best best <laughs> bits of television ever kino um, fucking kino. yeah absolutely pure cinematic <laughs> kino but yeah this is tremendous again i love wiseman i i also watched his film the store um about a department store in a lead up from thanksgiving to christmas from like I think it's in the eighties that film I can't quite remember. Yeah, that was on, it is. That, yeah, that was on. Yeah, um, Wiseman. Um, give me your thoughts on Frederick Wiseman. Um, big fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I. I, I re- yeah, yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm just trying to remember, as you say, like what's the last one that I saw? Um, did he do? Correct me if I'm wrong. Did he do one uh, where he like interviewed um, Steve Bannon or something? Was that no? Like... You're thinking of Errol Morris. Oh, I'm thinking of Errol Morris. Yeah, I, confu- I see. I always confuse those two. And then I was thinking, God, am I going to shit on Wiseman now? You've just kind of praised him for for this. Good yeah. stuff. No, you're right. I'm thinking of Errol Morris. That was the Bannon one. Um, so no, I can't remember the, the last Frederick Wiseman film I saw. But yeah, I think Did, he's like... a really interesting guy. Yeah. Did you see at Berkeley? Yes, I did. Yeah, fuck, that was a great one. Did you enjoy yeah. that? Yeah, I loved that Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some of the recent ones are great. I love Boxing Gym as well. But there's whenever I go through his filmography, yeah. there's so many that I've missed that, like, I don't know, I feel like I can't really say too much about him because it's, like, it's such a huge yeah. filmography. But, yeah, this is, yeah, it's my number number three of the year, and I think it's uh, just absolutely brilliant. And, uh, yeah, seek it out, seek it out, listeners. Uh, do you want to hit me with number two? Yes, for sure. Uh, my number two is um, again. I'm, I've become like almost like a parody where I just like <laughs> pick all my favorite directors, um, no matter what do they it. do. Uh, but I do, I do think this is going to be an interesting part of this conversation as well, um, and we can discuss it because I know you've got some thoughts on this one. And my mm. number two is uh, David Fincher's The Killer. Ah, oh, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, yeah, excellent. Okay, The Killer. Um, how many times have you watched it? Okay, and what's I've your favorite? I've seen it twice now. 
Okay, I've seen it twice. But what's your favourite joke in The Killer? <laughs> uh, my favourite joke in The Killer, great question, by the way, is probably the one, and I'll have to paraphrase, I can't remember verbatim what he says, but he's talking about how even if he was to murder X amount of targets, he yeah. wouldn't make a dent in the population. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I think is a really effective, we were talking about it with, with Haynes as well, like self-allegory for the film, or mm. the filmmaker itself, and this probably is the most self-reflexive um, example of directorial self-portraiture ever. Um, mm. I can't think of that, another one that, that even makes comes me, uh, close. That makes me think. Uh, of the, but he's he's cl- he's talking about his his fucking Netflix numbers, isn't he? Like it's clearly yeah. a double entendre for that. Yeah, that makes me think of that James Cameron quote recently when he had that interview with Greta Gerwig, and he said, "If I can't, for me to make this amount of money in a film, I have to get two percent of the world's population to see my film. If I can't get two percent of the world's population to see my movie, then I ain't shit." And it's just like, okay, yeah, fair enough, James. Like, I don't know if that's a healthy that way is, of looking at things, but it's a way of doing that it. Is, that, uh, is, that is so... I, I didn't know that as well, and I'm a huge camera head, so that's really funny. And it's so comparable to his portrayal in South Park that I'm just <laughs> loving that. <laughs> like, this um, absolute way, mo- megalomaniac. Sorry, go on. <laughs> My favourite joke in The Killer is... Um, yes. The, crypt- the crypto guy at the end... The fact, he, the fact the fact he wears a sub pop t-shirt and it's it's a bit old and shitty as well like that really made me laugh like that was really yeah weird. um that that yeah. whole sequence uh, the anticlimactic uh, nature of that and yeah just everything about that final final sequence i think if you're watching it as like a purely entertaining thriller which i've heard could have been argued it could have been made like like do you know what i mean like it rather than being this kind of streaming thing this mm. ephemeral, it's kind of here and now it's gone streaming picture. Had it been released in, a, you know, 10 years previously um, as maybe like the follow-up to Panic Room or something in, in more kind of traditional theatrical release. Yeah. Like that would have that would have upset the masses. They would have been like, God, like why is why is it ending so kind of like blandly? But it's so yeah. perfect for for it being like a, a, str- a streaming exclusive almost. Yeah, it's kind uh, of I know like it was released theatrically as well, but that 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 I don't know. I can't really explain it, but that how anticlimactic and funny that is. Like you said, it contains your favorite joke. I think it really fits in with how disposable a lot of the detractors of this film think it is, and how maybe mm. we can talk about the nature of like are all films released in this way like inherently a little bit disposable as well. Well, I guess he's kind of almost reflecting on the end of Mindhunter, isn't he? Where it's just like it kind of just ends. Like they don't they didn't finish it. And it's just like yeah. this film kind of just yeah, ends and doesn't, doesn't finish it. I mean, I've not seen Mindhunter, so I can't comment on it. It's good. Uh, yeah, yeah, you'd like it. Yeah, I I yeah, I probably would like it. Uh, do you know what's kind of put me off is the fact it was never finished. You know, I was just like, "Oh, okay, that's that's a bit of a shame, but I'll I'll get to it eventually." Mm. Um Yeah. But yeah, uh, I mean, I loved I loved the killer so much. Like I thought that movie, it was so slick. It was so slick so and so well slick. done. And like, Fassbender is such a great conduit for uh, for David Fincher. Like he's like he's, yeah, he's so like flexible and you know. And also like I love that he was kind of like taking the piss out of like the sort of hitman, um, you know, um, self-aggrandizing mythology a little bit at the beginning yeah, where totally. he's going through his method and then he's just like oh, I've not done a strangulation in a while it'd be nice to do one of those or you know <laughs> a poisoning or whatever just like oh, God, I have to shoot yeah. so many people like I love that it's <laughs> just really really excellent it's brilliant isn't it yeah I think yeah. I think I think Fincher when he made it was clearly uh, like 
there there is a shrug offness of it, but at the same time, he did need to re-establish himself as one of the kind of uh, premier yes. formalists, which you know he he very evidently is, and he's not a gun for hire either. He's like clearly an artist as well because mm. he's got um, recurrent themes that you know, and and the quality of his work speaks for itself. But for sure. I think after Mank, like there was kind of this need to be like, I'm still the fucking man, and that's what yeah. I like about this film. Yeah, it's kind of re reaffirming that a little bit. Um, but you know, we can talk about the fact that a lot of people don't think it is that. A lot of people think it's you know, despite its kind of very polished, very slick presentation that you and I respond to really well. They maybe they don't jibe with the self-reflexive, comedic, blackly comic elements or. Maybe they do think it is a little bit kind of disposable, and for that reason, think he's still on a bit of a a losing streak in a way. I've seen I've seen quite a lot of that. Um, so, but but yeah, I mean, it's kind of irrelevant for me. That's not the case for me. This is like him reasserting himself. It's him formally at the top of his game, mm. and Fincher has kind of always made films as kind of content and as product, and you know, mm. a lot of his films. Uh, riff on that because there's a lot of product placement within them. This one has <laughs> an obscene so amount ridiculous. of it. Although, oh my day! <laughs> although my favorite is still in Gone Girl, where she's drinking Lefe in the party, and it's just like literally right front of center yes. in the shot. It's such an obscure one as well, like Lefe beer. Like why the but, hell's that? But that's also a perfect film, one. Like. <laughs> that's a perfect one for that movie at that point. It is. is yeah, she, it is. The, the, it's when they're in New York, isn't it? And she's still like working yeah, in a magazine. Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm having this Belgian lager, aren't I? Aren't I Continental, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with, with Fincher is that he does see always... people with those things, whether it is the Lefe B yeah, or the T-shirt or the, you know, the whatever, like, I don't know. And they're, yeah. they're always just so on point, aren't they? Like, they're always, mm. like, pitch pitch perfect in terms of, like, as you say, right, skewering people. Mm. Uh, but what, what I guess what I guess the killer works well in, uh, the mode that it operates in, why it's successful for me, um, not just because of its formal um, impressiveness, but because of the kind of more slyly perverse elements is that he's he's skewering himself like he is the target of the comedy of the killer like if you mm. can say that the the hitman is the uh the analogy or allegory for fincher himself uh, maybe that when he misses his target you know that could be read as mank yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know stuff like that um and yeah, clearly every element. You know, there's a lot of the kind of self mythologizing around his um, around his process. You know, the mm. the Kubrickian like eighty takes, which has become really popular at the moment on social media because uh, because obviously uh, Mark Ruffalo and people like that are coming out and saying, yeah, like this guy's fucking mm. insane, like making yeah, yeah, yeah. making Zodiac was a nightmare, and it's you know all these like <laughs> clipped moments of interviews where they're talking about that process and I, I think the killer is really you know it it'd be so easy to do that in such a, in a way that's so indulgent and mm. um overstated and not funny but fincher is so intelligent and and you know using rather than obvious jokes or allegory narrative allegories like you know form a lot of the time to yeah. to depict um, his his to to kind of uh, do a post mortem on his own kind of uh, filmography and hang ups as a director, um, and whilst doing that, the killer remains one of the most satisfying, entertaining, uh, 
formally formidable, you know, thrillers, you know, B movies of the mm. year as well. So I think it's it's doing a lot, it's spinning a lot of plates and kind of knocking it out of the park in every way. And like I said, I'm a huge Fincher fan, so maybe I'm a little bit well, I'm heavily biased, but Mank definitely was a bit of a weird detour. And it's just good to see, you know, one of the goats back in, in goat mode. Yeah. Uh, talking about Mank, linking that to Asteroid City, another film I fell asleep uh, during, <laughs> and then uh, with that one I didn't actually go back um, to film. I don't blame him. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want. Oh, go on, go on. Give me, no, no, give me you go, you go. No, no, you finish. You finish. I, I was only, I was only going to give context that I think everyone listening to this, everyone thought Mank was inherently funny because it was called Mank, <laughs> like that was mm. the joke, yeah. like just repeating the title, and I found that funny too. Um, I'd give Mank another watch just because there's stuff in there about the making of Citizen Kane and things that I think are like quite like endearing and the fact that he's like doing his dad's um, script and stuff mm. I just think there's it's just no way near on the level and everything interesting about Fincher is kind of absent from it but right. I just wanted to for, for the record to be known that I'm not a Mankator <laughs> good. Good, good, good right my number two yeah. I'm going to link this to David Fincher. Apparently, this is a film that he's seen and raved about. It's something he doesn't do regularly. Uh, he doesn't uh, regularly rave about films. My number two film of the year is True. Albert Serra's Pacifiction. Uh, this is a superb film. It is absolutely hypnotic, beautiful cinema. Have you seen Pacifiction? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. Top of my list of things that I wanted to watch for this pod, where I was ah. like, that's going that's going on my list. And similar to the our fire and close your eyes and stuff we discussed before the pod, mm. I, did, I just didn't find the time to do it. Mm. Um, but I'm so glad you've chosen it because I, I want to hear so much about how great this film is. I'm glad Pacific you fiction. it. Pacifiction. Again, I'm going to refrain from spoiling it too much. So it's about like um, a French diplomat out on um, uh, Tahiti. And basically, you you start off and you start to see him, and he's like rocking around his island. He's got his cool suit, you know. Uh, it's played by Benoit Magimel, um, you know. And he's sort of like bopping around the island, you know. He's doing his little deals here. He's there with his dodgy characters. He's sort of like king of the islands. He's having a great time. And then the French government rock up, and they're like, "Listen, mate, we're going to start doing nuclear testing." And he's like, "Oh, um, well, that doesn't work for me, brother." And they're like, "Well, it works for us. So we'll see you later." Then the locals find out, and they get a little bit antsy, okay? Now, I know what you're thinking. You can start to see the obvious tension, his life starts to spiral out of control and all that, and it does happen, but it happens in such a languid pace and in such, like, you know, slow, meticulous breakdown, you know, of where you start to see all the local characters start to turn on him. And there are certain sequences in it that are really hypnotic. Like, there's one that I would say is my favourite sequence of the year where they go out on these boats like loads of people go out on these boats out into the water out into the ocean and they see people and they just sort of like rock along with the waves and it goes on for about seven minutes or so and it's just this diversion of like this is what the wealthy people do in this time they just go out into the water and they watch some people surf and then they're just sitting there on the water and then they're out there on their jet ski and then it ends and then they just move on to the next thing because that's what they do Sarah is showing the luxury that these people are living in mm. whilst knowing that nuclear testing is about to come and fuck the place up like it's going to wreck the place um yeah. but you know they're still going to have their leisure time there's this brilliant cd bar that they're in where it's just like neon lights 
drowsy, woozy music playing as they all just kind of like get drunk and kind of ignore what's impending and coming and don't really care too much uh, because in terms of the greater context of the island, but they care more in the context of, oh, this is going to ruin a good thing for me. Like, that is ultimately what happens in this film. It's about someone finding out that my good time's over and I don't want it to be. Mm. Um, beautiful, beautiful movie. Hypnotic movie. And I had it as my number one of the year up until I saw my number one of the year, uh, which I believe <laughs> yeah. we share. I don't think there's going to be any surprise there. We will get to that in a moment. No. But Albert Serra, Albert Serra elevated himself to... Um, new sort of like young master filmmaker coming through i was a fan of his Love other that. films have you seen any of his other films no i haven't and and it goes on to the question i was going to ask you based off your really nice description i'm, I'm really really excited to see it um yeah it look it just it looks incredible um what's are there any kind of analogs in terms of influences or uh, films that you think it reminded you of or it was clearly channeling that you know, might illuminate a discussion around it, or you think, oh yeah, I saw a bit of that and that that you know might might help recommend it to people who who even to less than honest, me, you know, have it on their list to see. To be honest, I don't really see a huge comparison. I don't mean that in the sense of he's this yeah, lone no, individual, lone individual voice. That can be a good thing in in and of itself. Right? Yeah, it's more that like the pacing of it. Like I hate to use the word the term boring. But there, there are bits in it where you see characters kind of doing nothing and they're kind of bored um, with like mm, their own sort I of like luxury. Um, and it's just, there's some hilarious interactions as well. Because like Majumel plays this guy like he's the big Don and then he realises he's not, but he can't let on that he's not the big guy anymore. So he kind of just still has to like walk around with this like cocksure attitude and like I own the place when he very much in fact does not own the place. So yeah again i i can't really give like a a one-to-one comparison Mm. with anything just go into it knowing that you will have sequences that kind of happen with not much meaning beyond whatever you want to read into it i mean that's the thing that i kind of would link it to the wiseman film is that like you can read into it as much as you want like you can read into the water sequence of just like surface pleasure of watching something beautiful or you could go into the social economic side of it as well but anyway passive fiction my number two film of the year only beaten out by my number one just about and i believe you have the same number one so i might as well announce it now that it is indeed uh martin scorsese's killers of the flower moon um his latest titanic piece of work a grand statement from a grand master of cinema um we've not really spoken about it much we both kind of knew we had this as our number one i'll let you go first Mm -hmm. killers of the flower moon banger Ooh. Yeah, my God. Um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about my experience going into it. You know, I ex- when the length the discourse was kind of had run its course, hmm. um, I I was like, well, this is fucking fine because I went to watch The Irishman on my own and had the yeah. most like profound like filming experience of my life. Mm. You know, very comfortable with one of the best, one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, taking as long as he needs to tell whatever story he wants to tell. He's earned it. Um, oh yeah, if anyone's earned it, he has. Th- this might be even more of a late master film than even The Irishman. I think The Irishman kind of wraps up um, a lot of the self mythology 
aspects of Scorsese as a, you know, as an entertainer, as a maker of uh, genre films, of, of primarily gangster films. Mm. And that kind of ties a, a neat bow around that. Whereas this, he's kind of like, it's almost like Seven Women by John Ford or something like that, where he's trying something completely new and changing his entire kind of like, uh, you know well, what? not entirely changing it because this is a gangster film too, in a way, which is fascinating. But certainly the way he approaches the material, um, you know, famously they changed it last minute, didn't they, from a, a more traditional procedural hmm. into one that foregrounds the perspective of the Osage more and makes, I would argue, um, uh, Lily Gladstone's Molly like the central figure of the film. Um, hmm. He's doing a lot of interesting things with perspective. You, you're never given her entire perspective, you're, but you're never given Ernest's entire perspective either. No. A lot of stuff just kind of happens in almost like a, like a documentary level. Mm. Uh, but I do think she's kind of the moral center of the film, and I do think it's very subtle in the way that it kind of, especially when you see everything unraveling and what's happening to her family, you are getting that kind of taxi driver stolen from Hitchcock, famous kind of like subjectivity that Scorsese is the best at, um, mm. whereby you're horrified because you're really seeing it through her perspective, similar to the way that we were talking about um, Arno in Love and Pop last week. Um, yeah, I just, I'll, I'll give a, a, as much of a summary as I can. I was, there, there were aspects of it or there were times in it when I was expecting a different kind of movie mm. where maybe you could argue that certain scenes meandered. Um, but by the end of it, my God, I was blown away. I was like, that's one of the best De Niro performances in years. Although yeah. he was great in The Irishman. That maybe is DiCaprio's best performance of all time, despite the fact he's he'd been in The Wolf of Wall Street and yeah. created Jordan Belfort in that. Um, this might be Scorsese's most mature movie, despite the fact he's got about ten super yeah. masterpieces. You know, like all these all these thoughts coming into my head about how uh, me trying to kind of come to terms with how impressive the film was. And also, by the way, just just to to tag on to that, Lily sure, Gladstone, please, Lily Gladstone having this amazing breakout performance. And then I did remember oh, like her, her in certain women, the Kelly Reichardt movie, then as well, where I'm like, mm. just an equally beautiful and but more of a tender performance rather than than this, which is this kind of heartbroken performance. Anyway, continue. continue yes, that's a, no, that I think that's spot on as well. She, she is great in that, and and in this, she's very much. Uh, I mean, God, the tr the tragedy of her character is is almost too hard to bear in this film. Um, that's what you know. She's. Me she's in the the central love story is a genuine one you know it's yeah. th their love is real i what fuck whatever kind of discourse there is around like you know white men marrying native americans or yeah. how the fact that he's like killing her whole family so he can't, his feelings are automatically invalidated that's that's not my reading whatsoever like i think if ernest shows one element of humanity and everything he does is kind of and in part of the the film's indictment of the American, um, the the American way that uh, institutions and and uh, white supremacy corrupts, um, the one genuine emotion that Ernest feels that he is actually in control of, and not kind of representing more of a byproduct of these wider kind of like themes or these or these things that are bigger than himself as an individual mm. is his love for Molly and the fact that he can get away with doing it to her 
you know, despite his feelings, is really, really tragic. And mm. the fact that she loves him too, despite the fact she really fucking shouldn't, <laughs> yeah. is also really tragic as well. And I think without that emotional centerpiece, or without that emotional core, the film wouldn't work nearly as well. If it was just a kind of um, a deconstruction or a critique of white supremacy at that time, or a typical historical narrative. And I think this mm. is why I don't like Gangs of New York particularly, because I don't think that particularly has anything that rises above the level of its, just a depiction of its milieu at the time. Mm. This is so much more sophisticated, I feel, because it's got that kind of like central, like really tragic love story. Like honestly, dude, like even think about it now, I'm getting choked up. That's how yeah. fucking profound this movie is to me. It's really, it's really heartbreaking the way that, you know, her whole life, is decimated but she still likes him and mm. the fact that she he's still in love with her but he's happy to fucking kill her whole family and destroy her life i mean that that for me is why this film works so well to, to beyond things. all of its you know Sorry. stylistic might and uh and formal and thematic you know mm. editorial technical majesty which it clearly has as well sorry joe to go back onto that love story you said it there like the love is real between those two but what is also real is that man's stupidity and how gullible he is that is also incredibly real going back to the Irishman you know Scorsese made a movie that basically said his grandiose and you know his earlier films you know Goodfellas Casino those films that we all uphold is bullshit you know these guys end up with nothing they're in prison they're dead they're alone in a nursing home with no family who wants to see them and they're just alone and that is the cost yeah and he basically said in a way his earlier films you know as great as they are and i do think they are obviously amazing there's an element of bullshit to them and what he did was killers of the flower moon he almost cracked open a new case and said the american west and the american cinema in a way is bullshit like it was built on a lot of death a lot of exploitation American capital Mm. was built on this and it's kind of bullshit and I just thought it was absolutely tragic and that last bit the radio play which is kind of like a critique on like the true crime podcast that we have now like just gonna say yeah that bit where like the the, poignancy of adding himself into the film initially again it was one of those things that I thought is it is it really like is it a bit goofy for him to do that and then when when it actually happened and you thought Oh, that's why he's putting himself into this because he's so tepid about actually inserting himself into this kind of narrative because he's he's not just in Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street, for example, and other films where he's indicting that lifestyle. I think he's quite obviously horrified by the lifestyle, mm. and certainly, you know that that for me problematizes the people who say it glorifies it. But in this film, I think he's not just he's not just disgusted by what happened in Killer. He's like he's like it rips his soul out and he has yeah. to show that and he has to show okay this wasn't uh, maybe this isn't my story to tell but i'm the guy to tell it right now and i've got to do it justice and you feel his kind of like moral ethical dilemma around that mm. when he inserts himself into the film um and you also you don't just feel like i say this this feeling of disgust around the the gangster lifestyle or the or the murder that America's built on, you know, whatever. You feel this genuine, like, feeling of, like, this This is what America is. 
and, and I can't take it. Like I really yeah. can't face it, you know. So so this is the way I'm dealing with that. Sorry to cut you off, Joe, but yeah, I found that I I did think that is the crucial scene as well. I just yeah. want to get across that. Yeah, I, I thought God, he's it's going to be a bit trite him doing his cameo now, but the more I kind of mull over it, the more I'm like blown away by by that well, bit. And just like the breakdown of like what happened to him, like you get this basically this cheap entertainment, and then they're like. And then Ernest left prison and he lived on the outside of town with his brother in a trailer park and he died penniless. <laughs> and then Scorsese's last statement where, you know, he says about her where it's like she remarried and then she died and she died like 15, 20 years before everyone else because of her illness and her diabetes mm. and whatnot. And then, you know, the murders were not mentioned in her obituary. And then it cuts to, oh. it cuts to the Native American dance song thing where like he's got yeah. the, kun, the kundun shot where he's above them and he pulls away and you realize that that's not a historical one that's now that they're doing it that, that yeah. is that that's them doing it now and honestly yeah. i was i was crying for about 10 minutes after that movie i was so shaken to my yeah, core by it. and you know there are sometimes i rate films in a way because like i had an emotional reaction to it and it's like yeah but you know there's many things wrong with it i had such a strong visceral mm. reaction to this film that kind of shook me in a way that I've not been in a long time and I think I don't think I've ever been shaken that way in a Scorsese movie other than like maybe The Age of Innocence you know it's mm. really yeah, but that's more like just a personal heartbreak rather than like a a cultural national heartbreak you know a heartbreak yeah, for, for I a mean, group of people yeah I mean my, my favourite one has always been Age of Innocence but then uh, of all of his films because oh, really? of the, the way it kind of yeah, absolutely. Because of the way it kind of depicts the personal heartbreak, I, I find it, you know, really, really, really poignant. Um, and it's mm. just as kind of, quote unquote, violent and incisive and, and kind of formally uh, inventive as all his other films as well. So I think, you know, I love him in kind of period drama mode. I, I was surprised he was able to make something as kind of ravishing as The Leopard or Barry Lyndon. Um within that mode, um, especially because mm. I think at the time I'd saw it, I'd, I'd only seen, you know, the obvious masterpieces. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because moving now into this kind of late master period, which is clearly in, I think silence is maybe the beginning of that. Um, mm. Although I think Last Temptation of Christ is also a masterpiece in terms of it being one of his spiritual films. I think the way that silence kind of treats those same themes is a bit more weighty. And there's mm. a little bit more meat on the bone and a bit more substance to dig into. I'm fi I'm finding that with Irishman. I'm like we've talked about it with this, you know, getting emotional even talking about it. I'm finding out with this. Um, there's something really poignant and really formidable about the way that he's making films right now, mm. and that's why that's why the discourse is so upsetting around like the length because um, it's it's just such a red herring. It's such a mis. You know, it's it's just such a cul-de-sac that that doesn't need to be explored. Like if 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 Marty wants to make films in this mode, and they happen to be you know even four and a half hours, I think they'd still be just as good right shit. now. Like he's yeah, the, the length, and who cares? Length, you know, the length is the it's, point. Like you, it needs to be this. The length, length is the point. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely intrinsic to the experience. Um, in a way that's different in Irishman and in this, I suppose in Irishman it's more about like really weighing on the tragedy of the characters, whereas in this mm. it's maybe more weighing on the tragedy of the situation, being mm. it a historical one. Um, but that room to breathe, that uh, almost overabundance of, of, of space for theme and form, 
is really, really impressive to me and, you know, really, really hits me right in the gut. And, mm. and this film absolutely blew me away. Absolutely yeah. blew me away. So, um, um, as much as I love the other films on the list, it's it, it, even just having this discussion with you who appreciates it just as much as me, I'm now really even more thinking about, you know, how far and away it's, it's got to be the best of 2024, right, Joe? It's got uh, 2023, rather. It's got yeah, to be the best. It, it is. It is. There's, there's none of the others yeah. really come close to, to it, and I do really love those other films. But um, yeah, can I run through the rest yeah. of my top ten for you, uh, just quickly? I'd love that, Joe. Yeah, go go for it. Okay, I'll go through. I'll go ten to six. So I've got um, uh, Connor O'Malley's The Mask at number ten. Um, again, we've talked about it plenty. I love that movie a lot. I've got. Um, <laughs> Uh, a series, a web series called Miss Me Yet by Christopher Jason Bell that looks back at the George Bush administration and the impact he had, all told through archival material. It's really excellent. I highly recommend seeking out. Very cool. It's all, broke, all broken up into like 20-minute yeah. episodes for each year that he was in, in power, so I really recommend that. Also, uh, another God, three web series things, or uh, online things I've got here in my... Uh, top 10 number eight i've got the history of the minnesota vikings by john boyce i love john boyce i love his films i love the his structure and style and the minnesota vikings one again um hypnotic beautiful tragic um heartwarming all those things just about a team that just has never been able to win anything despite being one of the best in the nfl not really an nfl guy but really enticing number seven the killer by david fincher of course, we talked about it a lot, and then number six, Bertrand Bonello's *The Coma*, uh, which he made uh, about. It's all about a young girl coming into like her top, t- like you know, her teenage years, where it's just like, oh, I'm going to be going out with my friends, I'm going to have a great time, and blah blah blah. You know, you that 16 to 18 range, and then COVID hits, and then she's sort of like stuck inside, and she goes into this world created through YouTube uh, accounts that she follows, Barbie dolls that recreate like you know overly tragic uh, melodramatic experiences that she should be having and then uh, this sort of dark dreamlike netherworld of the woods that she goes into in her dreams and then just the boredom of being online talking to your friends over you know can't Skype wait to see Discord. that one by the way. yeah coma really really recommend that so that rounds out my top 10 you know uh some other films that i liked as well made a sermon of course i've mentioned letters to the postman by felix dembinski really like that Passing Time by Terence Davies, his last film. Mm, um, Gans, sorry, a short story, his uh, short film that I really liked. And then, of course, The Man Who Couldn't Miss Screenings by Damon Packard. Sort of rounds out my honorable, <laughs> honorable mentions outside my top ten there. Um, anything else you want to add? I've gone quite long here, but if there's anything uh, else you want to pop in there? No, not really. I, I think you did a good job of, of summarizing some of the best ones. Uh, there's a few that, I, like I said, I really want to see. And I'm sure mm. you know they can be good fodder for for future episodes. Yes. Um, Petals of Fire, uh, Close Your Eyes, which you know I think you and I will do an episode on when it's Eureka? released because it now has Eureka. Lissandro L- Alonso's new movie Eureka. Oh which my god! Yeah, absolutely. Wait, is that a last year film? Ca- played is at Cannes. Played at Cannes, but I, oh I don't know, shit! But then. it's only getting a release in January this year in the UK. So expect well, us a- absolutely to then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that will be high up on there. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, Joaja is so good. And it's been, what, 10 years since that film? Longer, I think. Is it 10 years now? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, and I loved your butchered pronunciation of that as well. Uh, of uh, <laughs> it's Apparently, I've, again, I don't think anyone's properly confirmed it, but I think it's Hauha, 
Is how you're supposed to say it? Oh my god! Oh, yeah. I did butcher it then. That's <laughs> almost like a, yeah, diametrically opposite to how it's supposed to be said. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. listeners. God. I mean, yeah. Thank you Go so on. much for joining us. Uh, we will be back. I don't know, some point next week or the week after. Who knows? Maybe we need a rest after talking about Killers of the Flower Moon so passionately. Uh, you can contact us at 10tbharddrivepod at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, leave comments if you wish. Uh, we'll be back soon. As per usual, you can obviously go into the uh, the link down below if you have, uh, want to see some of the films that we've mentioned. I will also put the uh, films for the next episode in there, but we haven't decided what that's going to be yet. Thank you so much for joining us on this mega episode. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll catch you soon. Gareth, it was a pleasure as per usual. Always. Peace Always. out, guys. See you later. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, I watched Paddington 2. And... Um, <laughs> couple years away from the hype of it for christmas and um yeah i had to like when i watched it, i'm like that's a three and a half star movie and then i've knocked it down by half a star because the, the logic in my head is like that's half a star away from a history of violence and it's not <laughs> it's not that close in terms of quality and a part of me is just like maybe i should knock it down even further and it's just like i think that that's not a healthy way to watch things no is, is to like you know watch films within the context of all cinema is that film half a star away from Fort Apache no it is not well, yeah, I don't know. Fort, Fort Apache is a five star but um, yeah, do you know what I mean I get your point I do Yeah, I think the, the, the rating systems are always relative aren't they like you can't say like that Paddington very much I haven't seen it myself but it very very much might be a, a three and a half star film in terms of what mm. it's trying to do in terms of your expectation going into it, you know, the context in which it was made, whatever. Um, so you can't, whereas, you know, History of Violence might be like your 10th favourite Cronenberg. So, you know, yes, both be the same rating uh, without having to do like kind of facile comparisons um, that kind of that over overthink it really. But then, yeah, there's, there's, there's times when that is just irrefutable where like, you know, I've given movies by like, significant filmmakers like low ratings because for whatever reason that I haven't responded well to them and then I mm. see stuff I've rated really highly and I'm just like I can't really square that circle like that does feel <laughs> that does now make me kind of question the whole purpose of the rating system and you have a lot of people talking about how like Letterbox has made the viewing experience a little bit you know geared towards people thinking about their ratings while they're watching the film and yeah, I, I probably wouldn't say that's been too much of a thing for me. Like, I like I'm still quite no. still quite a se separate practice. Like, uh, you know, the best films for me you want to get lost in anyway. But I suppose certainly when there's been films of a lesser quality, where I'm like, yeah, I just I I I'm 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 prepping myself to slate this, or I know that I'm going to absolutely shit on this and hopefully spark <laughs> some discussion. Yeah, I've, yeah. Been, I've I've definitely been prone to that a, f a few times for sure. Oh, for definitely, definitely, and I, you know, I think we both will be at some stage uh, within the next year. We we've got our eyes set on the new Alex Garland film as the uh, as the sort of the target already. Target, we've got yeah. we've got a, we've got a nice fat bullseye on that one. So yeah, I, th I don't know. It's it's weird. Like <sighs> yeah, I don't know. It's not it's not healthy to to do that. I should just watch Paddington Two and think like yeah, that's a three and a half star film and. 
be yeah. fine with it. But you know, and then I'm like, uh, you know, I don't know. Sorry, go on. No, no, you go, you go. I was just gonna say, yeah, I mean it is it is all relative, but then I suppose um you were talking a little bit as well, maybe before we started this, about how you feel like you often overrate films. Um is that yeah. does that I just was curious, is that does that tend to be your tendency, like to kind of over egg it with certain movies and then have a couple of days to sit on them and then think actually I probably over overrated that because I'm I'm just working out for myself whether that's my tendency. I, I think maybe I'm a little bit more the other way where I'm a little bit too critical, and then when I sit on it a little bit, I'm like, actually, there was some stuff in there that you know maybe I'm not giving it credit for. See, do you know do you know what I do is that for a film like Paddington Two, I overrate it, okay, and then a film like Pulse by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. As I'm watching it, I'm watching it going like, oh my god, this might be one of the greatest films of all time. So then I start to criticize it harder, like in my uh, head. And then I'm like, I'm like, am I going to go five? Like, is this a five? And I'm like, no, four and a half. And then I look at that four and a half and I'm like, why don't I just give it the five? And then I hit it with the five and I'm like, yes, that is the right answer. So, you know, it, it's kind of, it's it's relative to the viewing experience, I think, is how I watch it. Like Paddington 2 Two minutes in, I know I'm not watching one of the greatest films of all time. You know, half an hour into Pulse, I've got a feeling that this might be one yeah. of the greatest films of all time. You know, and, and again, <laughs> again, such clear cinephile mental illness comparing yeah. to <laughs> Pulse, the viewing experiences of those two films. But it's great it's double bill, that. Yeah. <laughs> Pulse, Christmas film. You get on it. Like that's that's what you should be that's what you should be ruining your family Christmas with. It's like oh god. Oh, I, many, that- I wonder if I wonder if there has been some cinephiles like family, I've got a great film for us to watch. It's a bit scary, you know, and they put it on at Christmas <laughs> and they put Pulse on. Brilliant. Oh my god, that's horrifying. I just that that is um I mean that film we share a, a mutual a- obsession with it. But yes. um, I I struggle to watch it because of of that famous like ghost walk scene. Like there is there are certain there are certain horror things like possession is one of them. The monster in possession, like the way it's so fucking like it just even though the, it's like kind of bad effects, like just like the grotesqueness of it and like how mm. how like how much you can feel that. Like it it really it's really like uncanny valley, like unsettling for me. And I think the probably the apotheosis of that for me is that is that ghost impulse. <laughs> like even yeah, think every yeah, time yeah. the name gets mentioned, I'm just like like inside, just like trembling a little bit um, oh and gosh. recoiling in horror. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird that movie, isn't it? Just how it can like cut you so deeply, and it just like it really does crawl within you. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, really. it's very skin crawling. I, I I remember what I was going to ask you now. Um, it was going to be if there's what do you think has been the the biggest difference for you f- from kind of first viewing, like to where you potentially <sighs> sit on on a film now. Like, what's your kind of like biggest U turn that you've had while we're kind of talking about like how we, I guess like sometimes instantly show on films or sometimes instantly canonize them, and then other times just kind of like you know get it wrong i suppose just just miss the mark completely so what's been the I mean, biggest one for you the biggest turnaround do you know what was is kind yeah. of a funny one is that like okay if i'm counting like seeing a film and then um showing it to people like sometime later and going like oh god what have i done 
was I remember the I remember the first time I saw the film Your Highness. I saw it at the cinema and I saw it late, like at like a ten o'clock screening, and I was a bit drunk. And I went I went with a friend, and it was like me and him, and maybe ten other people in the cinema. Me and him were a bit drunk, and we were like howling at that movie and kind of like <laughs> yeah, that is one of the funniest films of all time. And I remember like some friends. Like, oh, have you got like a film that you would recommend to blah blah blah? You're the film guy. What fi- do you have like a funny film? Because there's no good. Oh, Your Highness, you gotta watch Your Highness. And then, um, yeah, just in absolute horror, as like you know, I'm kind of like trying to excuse myself to leave, uh, and they're like, no, you have to stay and watch this now. And I'm like, yeah, this this is no good. I do You've made I, I your do, bed lying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite literally, quite literally. Your I mean, James Franco I, stoner shaped bed. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think what's another one where I got it like hideously wrong. I feel like I've got it wrong like on the negative side. Do you know what actually? She's probably like in my top five favorite filmmakers. But I remember the first time I saw a Claire Denis film. Mm. I saw I saw White Material, and I saw people yeah. raving about it. And then when I went to see it, and I was just like, it's all right, like that. It's all right, and then. When I went through her filmography about maybe five years ago, and I got to White Material, and I saw it of a piece of her whole filmography, I was like, hell yeah. Hell mm. yeah. This is one of her best films. And it was just like, again, first off, I saw that in 2010 when it came out. I'm stupid. Yeah. What the hell do I know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm an idiot. And then I see it a bit old, and you know, you learn about, you know, you learn about the world a bit more, and you then watch White Material, and you're like, yeah, no, I was wrong about that one for sure. What about you? Is there one that you've had like a massive U-turn on? Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I, sorry, I love your Your Highness one because it's weird, isn't it? All the Danny McBride stuff is like really critically revered now, and rightly so, but like that one <laughs> has never no. been reclaimed. <laughs> no, it <laughs> never will. Capacity. It never will. And it never will. Yeah, it feels like yeah, a bit of an idea, um, but he's definitely had a good redemption arc since then. Um, sure. For me, I can't think of... Um, off the top of my head a film um, but if there are some like uh, gamers in within our listeners and I, I'm not doing anything you know particularly nerdy or obscure I'm going to go for mm. the most kind of like cinematic gaming auteur anyway which is um, I don't know if you played uh, Death Stranding uh, the Kojima yes. game it, yes yeah I yeah, played it because it's, that, it's Kojima yeah yeah. yeah, so it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that briefly if you want to share them. But for me, that was the biggest U-turn because I was living with my girlfriend at the time and didn't really have much time for games. And right. even though she was like kind of into them and stuff, we it's funny actually, we actually went to the Death Stranding experience that came over uh, that was in like Camden Market. I don't know if you checked oh, that out days. at the time. No, I yeah, didn't. Like, it was quite sick actually. I mean, it was it was hit and miss, but especially because at that point the game hadn't come out, so a lot of like the imagery and iconography like didn't there was it didn't make any sense if it mm. ever does, even after playing it. But um, well, yeah. a little bit more. But yeah, it was quite cool. Like you got to walk through like some of the scenes in the game, but which ended up being scenes that basically only exist in the dreams of Mads Mikkelsen. Like most of the game was just set on that kind yes. of like desolate like American world. But I know all of the, the kind of like more distinctive bits from the trailer that were replicated in the Camden Death Stranding experience were like ended up just being kind of dream sequences for Mads, like where he goes back to like the war and stuff like that. Um, there was one like walking through the trenches and you just kind of stood there while all these 
like uh, soldiers kind of like with ga- gas masks like walked past you and stuff. Um, mm. Anyway, yeah, but in terms of the game, that was the biggest U-turn because I fucking hated it. Like when I first played it, <laughs> I was like, I was like really contrarian about it in the way that a lot of like the mainstream critics were kind of put off by it as well because of how mm. just like like how kind of aimless it felt. Um, mm. But by by when I went back to it after we had broken up and I could actually dedicate some full time to it, like I wasn't just able to do it in like two hour sittings, which I don't think for a game like that is very conducive, but you know, I was able to do the kind of lazy man cave shit where I could play it all day long. Like it, mm. it became like probably one of my favorite games ever, especially when you consider how like homogenized gaming is and how much of an outlier and, and a unique vision that game is. So yeah, that went from like a two star to like almost a, a five star for me. Damn. Um, so yeah, Point I'm going to go with Death Stranding. <laughs> Death Stranding, nice. I like that. Uh, right, we've yeah. warbled on here. 